Please feel free to finish those conversations after the service. Just when you're ready. (laughs) I said just when you're ready. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you know, as a... In my early 20s, I was called in jury duty. I don't know if any of you have ever been called up in jury duty. Um, For me, it was absolutely terrifying because I had to sit and be picked um, to go and sit in a jury. And in Scotland, what they do is the people who are the accused can sit in front of you and say, I want him, I don't want him, which is Glaswegian for he would be very good to be in my jury and he would not be terribly good to be in my jury. And um, this was a particularly horrible crime where a whole family had actually killed another family. And it was, it was terrifying because he was a family sitting in front of you. And fortunately enough, they said to me, don't want him. I, I wanted to cry. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you so much. It was absolutely terrifying being there with those men. It's funny because reading through the book of Genesis... Some of the characters that I remember seeing that day come back almost to haunt me. Because these stories that we're reading that God has recorded for us, people that he has given a promise to, some of the stories are not that great. As we see the grace of God, but we see just what people are really capable of. And up until this point, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we've seen a promise given to a man called Abram. And that promise consistently given to his son, his grandson, so on and so forth. And now we've come to a point where we have a man called Jacob who has 12 sons. And this, in some ways, is a real pinnacle moment. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1 through 11, it starts off with God creating the world, and then something goes wrong. And by the time you get to chapter 11... It really has gone majorly wrong. And chapter 11 is the pinnacle of those 11 chapters, where it just says things have gone horribly wrong. Then after that, from chapter 12 onwards, we see God's plan, God's rescue plan, not just for a small nation called Israel, but for us as well. But all the way through that rescue plan, what we're seeing are men and women who are not tremendously heroic. In fact, they're very much like us with some of the good bits and bad bits of us. But by the time we get to Jacob and his sons, we're about to hit a major low point, a really major low point. Up until now, the families that we've seen are dysfunctional. There's been lying. There's been cheating. There's even been killing. And you keep on thinking as you're reading, it can't get any worse. How can God put up with this? And then you get to the story we're about to read tonight. And here we go from a family which is not just cracking, but really a family that's shattered. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 37. It's on page 41 of the, the church Bible, um, if, you, if you want to follow. Starting at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. 
his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Well, your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Yes, throw him into the cistern in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. 
his brothers agreed. So, when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see if it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our friend, we would ask that you would come by your Spirit and would allow us to see what you have for us tonight through your Word. We thank you that these are not idle stories written down we're going through, but they are your Word to us even in the 21st century, and you still speak. Please, Holy Spirit, we ask, first of all, that you speak. And secondly, you give us arms and hearts and minds and legs to move in response to what you say. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dreadful story. Shut broken family up until now, and now you've got a family that's absolutely shattered. That picture of the brothers looking at their little brother coming along, but you could see it coming. As we've been reading through Genesis, it's not really a surprise. Here you have Jacob, who really loved his wife Rachel and had two children to her. Then he's got three other women in his life with a whole bunch of other children, and he shows favoritism to the two. You could see there was trouble coming. And all the way through, favoritism has caused immense problems in his family. But here we have this boy, Joseph, who, is, is he the hero? Well, he's not a great hero if he is, because it would be good to say, here was this little boy, Joseph, 17 years old, never did anything wrong, and his brothers were bad to him. He gets dreams, and then he goes and lords it over his brothers. And when he, t he finds things out about them, He'll go and tell tales on them. He's not a tremendously good character. He's not a tremendously good character, but he doesn't exactly deserve to die, though, does he? And yet that's what his brothers have in mind for him. And so this battle between Jacob and all the sons of Leah and, and, and the various other women in, 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 in Jacob's life really develops to this critical point where there's really murder in the mind, even within the family. What we need to ask is what did the original writer of Genesis record this for? And then we need to know what do the New Testament writers make of this? 
And having asked those two questions, we need to ask ourselves, is God saying anything to us through this passage? Because it's not just written down for entertainment. It's not, just to, it's not just to make sure you're doing a religious version of EastEnders here. God has written it down for our instruction. So what did the writer of Genesis make of the story? Notice 37 verse 2, this is the account of Jacob. So from this point onwards, we have Jacob telling the story of his family. And although we are going to concentrate quite a lot on Joseph the next couple of weeks, if you go through to verse 50, to chapter 50, what you'll find is that there's other characters as well. One of the brothers, Judah, is there too. And in fact, reading the stuff about Judah leaves this chapter behind. And so it's an account of how God works his grace through not just a broken family, but a family that is absolutely shattered. Now, he's, he's already given a promise to the, to the, to the, the grandfather and the great-grandfather, and he gives the same promise to, to Jacob. If you turn back Genesis 35, and verse 11, and so this is Jacob as, as an old man, his, his wife's about to, to, to die, his, his, his sons are all there. Verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and the king and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give you this land. I will give this land to your descendants after you. The same promise, time and time again, to a family that are really dysfunctional. To a family which is broken. And one of the major themes we've seen time and time through Genesis. Here you have a family which is not just broken but shattered. But God's plan still seems to be intact. God's plan for them, which is only for good and done by grace, still seems to be intact. Now, where we have stopped at the end of chapter 39, we can't see that. And certainly, Joseph... I can't, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for this, for this teenager to be stuck, taken off into slavery. And he probably knew a bit the promise made to his dad and to his granddad and his great-granddad. That that family were going to bless the nations. Bless the nations? My brothers just, just tried to kill me. They threw me down into a pit. And while I sat in the pit, they ate a meal. Not sure what was, going to, what was going to happen to me. And then they sold me into slavery. How can God's promises come true in such awful circumstances? But as we read through and go through, we find out that God shows Joseph that what his brothers meant for bad, God turned for good. God is on line with his plan, even though the circumstances outside are pretty lousy. We've concentrated on Genesis 37 with Joseph, but even if we had gone and looked at the account in the next chapter about Judah, here's a man who's directly in the line of King David and directly in the line of Jesus, quite an important man, and he almost mucks up big time. We're not going to read it, but go and, go and have, have a look. He almost mucks up big time. And here you have ordinary, fallible men and women making wrong decisions, bad decisions, doing things that are wrong, occasionally turning to God, and each time God sees a tiny little chink, 
his grace flows into it. This is a book of grace. And so the writer of Genesis is telling us that even although this promise has been given, it will be fulfilled despite what you see around about you. The circumstances of these people's lives are the wrong place to look. You look to what God is going to achieve. And that sort of takes us on to the next thing that the writer is trying to bring out here. And that is, you may have noticed that God isn't mentioned here. Now, does that mean he's not present? Can I suggest to you that here and throughout Genesis, there are times when God is active in his hiddenness. God is active in his hiddenness. God is not mentioned directly, but in verse 6, you have a dream. And in verse 9, you have a dream, the same sort of dream. Now, that idea of, of, of dreams and, and, and what they mean, if we look all the way through the, 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 the Old Testament, I mean, there's lots of different types of dream, but this idea of the two dreams being the same is a pattern which seems to be used to say, this is going to come true. We can see it later on in Joseph's life. We can actually see it later on in, in the Old Testament as well. Usually when there's two dreams, there's the idea that God is, is saying something significant. Dreams and prophecy come together. And so if you're going to look for a hero in this story, this, the, the hero is the one that you can't actually see at the minute. Right at the beginning of the chapter, you have these promises there are promises that are made to this young man. Now, he takes them badly. He looks at it and thinks, hey, that's cool. I must be really special and uses it to Lord over his family. But in fact, those promises are promises which will be fulfilled. And the person that's written Genesis, the way it's written, those promises are key to the next 13 chapters. They're absolutely key to the next 13 chapters because what they do is you see those chapters working out the promises where eventually those things do happen and his family do go and they do bow down but it's not quite like the young teenager made out. In fact, he's, he's very much changed by then. God is active in his hiddenness. So the writer of Genesis wanted to show that God's grace goes right the way through. Even, even though the events are pretty lousy, God's grace is there. And even when you don't think you can see God, he is there working his purpose out. What about the New Testament writers? Joseph doesn't get much of a mention in the New Testament, but one of the most critical places is actually in a speech made by an accountant. I don't know if you know that. Here we have an accountant making a speech. Now, that sounds really dull, except that this accountant is giving the speech of his life. And he actually loses his life because of it. If you turn to Acts, chapter 7, verse 9. <clears throat> you have a man called Stephen in the early church who's being accused of doing things that are anti-God. And what he does, and we can read all the way through chapter 7, all the way up until the very end of that chapter, this big, big, long-seeming history lesson. Here's this man, Stephen, giving what looks like a history lesson to men who know their history really well. Seems a bit crazy. Why go to all that trouble to tell these men their own history? And part of that history, Acts verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 
Because the patriarchs, that's basically all the sons of Jacob, were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He goes through and he gives this history lesson of the history of Israel, and he mentions Joseph. Why does he give this history lesson? Not because they don't know it, but because Stephen shows them from their own history that these men who supposedly are looking for God's Messiah miss it. And in fact, throughout their history, each time God gave someone who was going to serve the nation of Israel, the Israelites tended to miss it. And so here you have people who suffered for their faith, and God constantly gave them to the people of Israel. These people listened to him, listened to him, and they were rejected. And finally, Stephen finishes off with really quite a, a sort of nasty, nasty sounding thing, but in fact, you can see why he's angry. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's Jesus. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. To Stephen, Joseph was a type of Jesus. Not exactly, but a type of Jesus. All the way through the Old Testament, the very idea that someone comes along and something unjust is done to them, but that injustice gets turned to good, is all the way through. Before we had communion, Pam read a chapter from Isaiah 53, a chapter which really puzzles a lot of the Jews even today. It's a, a passage which is about a servant who suffers. It's about a man who will be despised and rejected by his friends. People will turn their face away from him. But through wounds done to him, the people will be healed. That's what happened to Joseph. Here's Joseph, a young teenager. Okay, he's a bit of an upstart. He's made some fairly bad decisions fairly early on. But he didn't deserve death. And he certainly didn't deserve to be put into slavery. And the stuff that we see afterwards, he didn't deserve any of that. But God turns it round and makes it for good. He's despised, rejected by his family, but God turns it round for good. Isaiah 53, someone will come who will be despised and rejected. God will turn it round for good. And what do we see? We see in the New Testament the figure that if you like, this young man Joseph points towards. He's a type of Jesus. He's not perfect, but he's a man who suffers and God turns bad stuff into good stuff. God turns bad stuff into good stuff in this man's life. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus Christ. And so when we look into the Old Testament from Genesis right the way through, we see, we see figures who are types of Jesus. Figures who their lives sometimes can actually be quite miserable. People like Jeremiah, called the weeping prophet. But God does something amazing and brings about redemption, brings about buying back through that suffering. So what do the New Testament writers make of Joseph? 
Well, in some ways, he's a type of Christ. He shows us the idea of something that looks, on the face of it, really bad, being turned around and made into something really, really beautiful. So what does it mean for us? Three things. Shattered lives, and yet God's plan still exists. How does that happen? Now, we've said it on quite a few different occasions. We see sinful, screwed-up people, and yet God's still achieving his purposes. And there's all sorts of difficulties in there. But is there? Because the beauty is that God, the author of this book, and the author of everything that we are, is able to stand back and take the long view. It's quite difficult when you're up close to things to see what's going on. It's only when you're able to stand back and see everything, you can really have an idea of what's going on. Tim, could you put up my first picture, please? Uh Oh, don't show them all, please. Just as well. Okay, tell me, what can you see? Feel free to participate. What can you see? Tin cans. They're actually empty tin cans. Just a whole bunch of empty tin cans pulled out of a rubbish bin. Anyone want to see something different? Sorry? Seaside. Very good. I keep taking the tablets. It's really empty tin cans. (laughs) Anyone want to try anything else different that's vaguely credible? Mediterranean Sea. Any other takers from Mediterranean Sea? So you're trying to find patterns in it. It's a bunch of cans. Come on. It's a bunch of cans. They are grotty cans that have been piled up. That's all they are. They're just a bunch of worthless cans. Can we pull out a bit, Tim? Now, it's still the same cans. See something appearing? Can we pull out just one more? It's an image which is quite famous, quite a famous painting, French Impressionist painting. Oh, well done, Surat, absolutely. It's Surat. But hold on, I asked you earlier on, what did you see? And I said, did you see a whole bunch of cans? Okay, and there were some people who, who you know, sort of had a, a bit of extra vision there or something. But all of you just said, yeah, it's a bunch of cans. So what are you looking at? Are you looking at a bunch of old cans? Or are you looking at an Impressionist master painting? Which one are you looking at? It's quite a funny question, isn't it? Because no matter what you see, it's it's right and it's wrong. It's a whole bunch of cans. But once you stand back and you look at the way that those cans have been arranged, there is something incredibly beautiful there. The book of Genesis, when we read it through, and if we didn't have God's commentary on it, it's a bit like watching all those cans. And all you can see is a whole bunch of dirty, smelly cans that should be thrown in the bin. But with God's perspective, because think of Genesis as just like watching the television, but with the sound turned up rather than turned down. We've got God's commentary on it. And it's also a bit like standing back and having a look at what, what happens when a whole bunch of dirty cans are arranged by a master artist. You can't see it when you're up close. You can't see it when you're in it. But if someone says, stand back, 
The book of Genesis and this chapter is a stand back. Stand back and look at what your God is doing. And even stuff that is made up of rubbish, God turns into beauty. In fact, when I saw this this set of um, images, first of all, the verse that came to mind was a verse from Isaiah, which says, I will give you beauty for ashes. It's a bit like I will give you an impressionist painting for crummy little tins. I give you beauty for ashes. That's what our God does. What do we take away from that? Shattered lives, it looks like, but God's plan still persists. It's very difficult in our lives to know what is actually going on. It's very difficult to take the long view. What you can do is trust in the person who can take the long view. I suspect there are shattered lives in here. Not just broken, but truly shattered lives. Just as shattered as the characters we're we're reading about. Where stuff that's been done in family, stuff that's been done among friends, stuff that's been done by really horrid people has shattered and destroyed. And God says, it doesn't have to stay like that. That because of Jesus, it can change. God knows because he knows he's got the big long view. It doesn't have to be that way. Shattered lives, relationships, families. God has still got his purposes. And what we know is those purposes are good. Very difficult to see it when you're standing up close. Very difficult to see it when you're standing up close. But God has got those purposes. Secondly, God is active in his hiddenness. So often in our own lives, there's a feeling that God just isn't there. If you aren't a Christian at all, you may sometimes get glimpses of God. But, you know, for a lot of the time, as I remember when I wasn't a Christian, he just wasn't there. He just didn't seem to turn up. He's there. He's there and he knows you and he loves you. And even although it doesn't seem as if, he's, as if he's present, he is absolutely present. He is nearer to you than he is. Sorry. Yes, he is nearer to you than you are to yourself, as one really famous theologian put it. It's really, really close. But even for folk who have faith, there are people who have been Christians for months, for years, for tens of years. And if the honest truth is told, it feels that they are walking through a desert and that God is not there. He feels absent. Just in the same way as this story, you could read it and think that God is absent. And he's not. Just in the same way as this story is a story of the goodness and grace of God, even though he's not mentioned. If you're a Christian and Jesus Christ has died so that you might live, running through your life is a God who is so close and will never ever move away. He just won't, he won't just decide to give up on you and walk somewhere else. And even if you don't feel him, even if you can't see him, even if everything is telling you this is not true, he is absolutely there. The book of Genesis through to the book of Revelation tells us that there's a hiddenness in what God does sometimes, but he never, ever leaves the scene. This idea... This, this pattern of people rejecting 
God's chosen messenger, and yet God turning that for good. That is Jesus. Everything we read about in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that stuff, although it seems a million, million miles away, although it seems a whole bunch of, sort of primitive people thumping each other with axes and everything else, all of it points towards what Jesus did in the cross. All of it points towards what Jesus did in the cross. The Old Testament illustrates the New Testament time and time again. I know I said that last time we talked in this, but it's really important that you see that. That these folk, even though they seem incredibly primitive, they've got a lot of, a lot of the features are very similar to us. And what we see in their lives is God working out things, and the principle, the principle that we see in the cross happens time and time again throughout history. That there are people who, who stand up for what is right, who try and live the way God demands, and they get crushed. They get crushed. If you're a Christian, and you try and live the way that God wants you, I can guarantee you, you will get crushed. For some people, it's because they're just weird, right? Some people are just plain weird. And I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about God's peculiar people. I'm talking about folk who, who just decide, I'm going to go Jesus' way. There will be a time when folk will say, actually, we don't want you here, or you shouldn't be doing that. It's happened throughout human history. And Jesus said, if it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. So I suppose the reason I'm telling you, and telling myself, is I don't want it to be a surprise when all of a sudden you find that your faith is offensive. But I don't want to stop there, because what we see with the story of Joseph is that his little visions were offensive and caused chaos. But God turned it into something good. If you're going through something just now because you're suffering for just trying to go, go Jesus' way, God will do something and turn that for good. can't tell you what it is. I don't even know what it looks like. And you might not even ever find out yourself. But God will turn it for good. One of the passages that you continually go back to when you read the book of Genesis is Romans chapter 8. God works everything for good for those who love him. And that happens time and time again. That's what happened in Joseph's life. That's what happens in our own lives. Even although the experience that we have when we're up close, when we can't see the big picture, feels pretty terrible. If we're following God's way, and you don't have to be perfect, you just have to keep your eyes on him and want to be like him. You might have suffering in this world, but God will turn it for good. Final word of Jesus, and this is definitely for someone in this room. In this world, you will have trouble, but do not worry, I have overcome the world. That begins in Genesis 37. In this world, in this pit, you have trouble, Joseph. But don't worry, I have overcome the world. And in the weeks to come, we'll see that this man, this man that develops from this bit of a not very nice teenager, really does influence nations, much as the prophecy that was given to his family says. He changes the fate of nations. As we go further on, we'll find that one of his brothers, Judah, changes the fate of nations because Judah is in the direct line to Jesus Christ. 
all these stories of people continually making the same mistakes and mucking it up, God turns it into something beautiful. Beauty instead of ashes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look at Joseph and we, we sort of feel sorry for him and such a precocious young person treated so badly and yet you had so, so amazing plans for him. We thank you that for every single person in this room, you have amazing plans. No matter where we are right at this moment in time or what we're facing, you have plans for good and not for evil. You have plans to take things that are ashes and make something beautiful. Holy Spirit, I would ask that now as we, as we come to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the power of the Spirit, that you would come to us and convict us, encourage us, allow us to praise you as you, as you deserve to be praised, and help us to see in all the Scripture the Lord Jesus Christ in all his beauty. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. And may it not return to you without accomplishing what you set out to do. In the name of Jesus, amen.